we're reading from the whole of Isaiah chapter 36 and bits of Isaiah 37. So I'll guide you as to which bits as we go along. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? 
How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Now we're going to move down to chapter 37, verse 14. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord God, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Now we're going to move down to verse 28 and 29. But I know where you are, and when you come and go, and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. And now finally moving down to verses 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Shereza, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esau Haddon, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes again to see you afresh. Amen. Um, let me start with the question. Uh, what do you do when uh, faith is mocked? What do you do when faith is mocked? Uh, one of the most famous kind of mockers of the Christian faith in recent years, Ricky Gervais. You may have seen some of his tweets through the years. Um, here's one of them. 
uh, MTV News, Beyonce, Rihanna, and Katy Perry send prayers to Oklahoma. Hashtag pray for Oklahoma. I feel like an idiot now. I only sent money. Let's see, actually, he, uh, he, he, he ups the scorn in some of his other tweets. How about this one? Everyone has the right to believe anything they want, and everyone else has the right to find it bleeping ridiculous. Ouch. How about this one? Imagine if you carried on believing in Santa and the Tooth Fairy into adulthood and even killed and started wars over it. Ha ha. Imagine that. Designed to make you feel, this is stupid to believe this stuff, right? If it was just him, it'd be pretty easy to ignore, but it's not just Ricky Gervais, is it? A few weeks ago, a comedian from my favorite podcast released a new stand-up show on Amazon Prime, so I flicked it on. Two minutes in, what is he doing? He's just mocking, specifically Christianity. It's not, it's not that, he, that, that people, these guys are uh, presenting profound arguments that deeply undermine what I believe. It's not that. But there, there is something about seeing a room full of people laugh at what you believe that just makes you feel, am I being stupid here? You ever felt that? Am I being stupid here? Of course, it's harder when that mockery is closer to home, isn't it? I heard of a, a woman who became a Christian as an adult. She already had um, a husband and, and, and kids. And her husband hated the fact that she'd become a Christian. He hated her faith. He didn't try and argue with her or dissuade her. He just mocked her. Dripped in, teasing through the weeks and days, uh, months and years. And he would try and tease her uh, for being naive, for being weak-willed. And he would try and do that in front of the children on purpose. Heading off to your church, are you? Say, say hi to the, to the tooth fairy for me. Trying to get the kids to laugh at it too. I just think for this, for this woman, you know, the people that she loves most in the world laughing. At her faith. You've got to think, why am I being stupid here? Because there, are, there are moments when the voices that mock aren't actually just outside us. Sometimes it's hardest when those voices are, are inside. You know, moments where someone's really trying to trust in God, but maybe their health is so bad, or they're, they're in a financial hole, or they're struggling over and over with the same sin, and they think, I'm trying to trust God, I'm trying to trust God. And then this other voice comes into their heads. Am I being stupid here? Am I just being naive? Do I just need to grow up? That voice can come from my own head. What do you do when faith is mocked? I wonder how you'd answer that. Well, here in this chapter, what we have is the, the great king of Assyria mocking uh, God's people, mocking their faith. Um, this is kind of the climax, really. If you've been here for the last few weeks, it's been building up since chapter 28. The king of Assyria is coming to attack Jerusalem. And the question's been, who are they going to trust? Here we get like, the climax of the movie. The king of Assyria in one corner, the god of the universe um, in the other, and in the middle, King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria is just saying, mocking them, mocking what they believe in. Say, don't trust in that. Come and join us. And so what we're going to see, um, the passage kind of breaks into three quite neatly. We're going to see the points are on, your, on the handout there. We get the kind of threat and mocking in chapter 36, which is genuinely terrifying, I think. 
we see Hezekiah's response. He trusts, he runs to the God of the universe. And then we're going to see God's response. He demonstrates that he alone is mighty to save. So look, if you want one thing to take away today, what do you do when your faith is mocked? Run to the king of the universe because he alone is mighty to save. So that's where we're going. Uh, First thing then, uh, when your faith is threatened and mocked. Have a look down at verse uh, 1 with me in chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah um, at Jerusalem. Uh, He states this quite matter-of-factly. This is absolutely terrifying. Um, we said over the last few weeks, it would be a bit like being in a Ukrainian village right on the border, looking out at the huge, overpowered Russian army massing against you. I actually think it's worse than that because this army's already started invading. It's destroyed loads of the fortified cities in the country. And it's worse than that as well because this army was known for its brutality. If you go to the British Museum now, you can see Assyrian reliefs of of invasions like this and the way they they celebrate what they did to the prisoners. One Guardian reviewer of of the display said these are some of the most horrific images ever depicted. There are pictures of the Assyrians ripping out people's tongues before skinning them alive. There are pictures of them forcing their prisoners of war to grind the bones of their own parents before cutting their heads off in the street. That army they are looking at, about to invade. You've got to be thinking, if that's you in Jerusalem, you've got to be thinking, what are we doing? (laughs) What is about to happen to my family, to my loved ones? It's absolutely terrifying. But then the psychological warfare starts. Um, In verse 2, the field commander of the Assyrian army, um, the word there for field commander is the Rabshaka, which is really fun to say, so I'm going to keep saying it. The Rabshaka comes, and his job is to conduct psychological warfare, is to try and convince them to to give up um, before the invasion. Uh, And you see, that's exactly what he does. If you look at verse 4, he just starts trying to undermine their confidence. Uh, He says four times through this speech, what are you basing your confidence or your trust on? What are you depending on? And so verse verse 6, you'll notice, he he tries to undermine their confidence in Egypt. They'd made an alliance with Egypt. How's that working out for you? He says, you tried depending on Egypt, didn't you? But when you lent on them, they turned out to be just like a, a stick, which when you lean on it, breaks and puts splinters in your hands. How's that working for you? Next, verse 7. What about God? You trusting in God? If you say to me, you're depending on the Lord, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has already removed? You're trusting in God, are you? Your king has already failed him. Why, would you, why do you think God's going to save you if you've already let him down? He does a similar thing in verse 10. He says, furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Okay, you're trusting in God, are you? What if your God's on our side? Have you thought of that? What if your God is on our side of history? Now, he's being really subtle here um, because what he's doing is he's taking a bit of truth and he's mixing it with lies to undermine their confidence. 
So in verse 7, Hezekiah had removed some outer shrines, but they were the shrines of other gods. You can read about it in 2 Kings. It was a good thing. But the Rabshakeh takes a bit of truth and mixes it with a lie. Similar thing in verse 10. God had told his people that the the king of Assyria was going to come against them. But God wasn't on, on the Assyrian side. He hadn't abandoned his people. He takes a bit of truth and he mixes it with a lie. And it's much harder to, to call it out that way, to undermine their confidence. One commentator put it like this. They said, it's always Satan's way to make us think God has, ab- has abandoned us and use logic woven of half-truths to convince us of it. Something of that, I think, in Ricky Gervais's tweets, when he says how ridiculous it would be for people to kill each other in the name of God. Well, there's a truth there. It's wrong for people to kill each other in God's name, right? But he mixes it with a lie that God, the idea of God is ridiculous. Much harder to resist. Truth woven with lies just to undermine their confidence. And then um, he, he starts shouting out to all the people in Jerusalem, attacking their faith directly. We'll pick it up in verse 15. He shouts, and this is to the people in Jerusalem. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord when he said, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. It's really interesting what he's doing here. He starts promising them things. And those promises, they actually echo some of God's promises back from Deuteronomy. So he's he's offering himself here as a counterfeit savior, an alternative savior to God. And it's like he's saying, what your faith is giving you, I can give you that. And I'm right here. You can see us. Come, we'll give you what you think you're getting from your faith. Of course, it's ridiculous. The Assyrian army were not known for taking people on pleasure cruises. They're trying to enslave them. But they're mocking, they're mocking God here. They're saying, we can give you what what you think your faith is giving you. And then verse 18 and 19, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever um, delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharavim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? No other religious systems ever stood against us. Why do you think your God is going to save you from us? Like, look at the evidence they're saying. History is on our side. There you are trusting in in your naive little faith in God, your dusty old book of scripture, grow up. I mean, how how stupid, how naive. Grow up. Come and join us instead. I wonder, do we we get a sense of just how intimidating that would be if you're hearing this, all your confidence just being undermined? and you're looking over this ravenous army that's about to attack you. You've got to be thinking, hang on, guys, are we, are we being stupid here? 
That's what the Rabshakeh does. Mocks and pours scorn to undermine uh, God's people's confidence. And of course, the Rabshakeh still speaks today, doesn't he? We still hear the Rabshakeh's voice today. I wonder if you came, you, you know this, a few years ago on his blog, um, Richard Dawkins wrote this to his followers. He said, I think we need to go beyond humorous ridicule and sharpen our barbs to the point where they really hurt. We should abandon the irremediably religious, because that's just what they are, irremediable. I'm interested in the fence-sitters. I think they're likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody wants to be the butt of contempt. A friend of mine pointed this out to me. His tactic there, he's not saying, let's use reason and engage with the faith. Don't don't engage with the gospel. That's not going to work, he says. Scorn, mockery, laugh at people. Rabshakeh still speaks today. I wonder for you, where, where is it that you hear his voice? We hear the voice of the Rabshakeh in the, the comedians on TV, in the articles, in the news. We hear it in the, the pressure that is sometimes heaped on Christians on social media for standing on some things the Bible says. Scorn, public scorn, ridicule poured on them. Of course, as I said, we hear it sometimes in the pressure that families can put on us, or the snide comments from our colleagues. Sometimes the voice of the Rabshakeh speaks just in our own head. Don't be so naive. Grow up. And when we hear him speak, the danger is that it just it undermines our confidence. It's a bit like when you hear the, the chair that you're sitting on creak. <laughs> you think, whoa. Being stupid here. What do we do? I want to say as well that I suppose if, if, if you're here today and you're just looking into Christianity, the Rab Shaka is still speaking to you, saying, You don't need this. <laughs> this is stupid. What do we do? What do we do with that? What do we do when our faith is mocked and threatened? Well, what does Hezekiah do? We'll move on to see what Hezekiah does now. Um, just to say, there's a, little, there's a little subplot here, by the way. Back in chapter 7, Hezekiah's dad is called Ahaz, and he kind of lives in his shadow. Ahaz, back in chapter 7, in the same place that's mentioned in uh, chapter 36, verse 1 and 2, the aqueduct. His dad is there, and there's an invading army, and the question is, is he going to trust in God? And he fails. He fails to trust in God. So this moment, the subplot here is, is Hezekiah going to make the same mistake as his dad? Have a look at what what he does in verse 14. Uh, We didn't get to read all of chapter 37. Basically, uh, short version, Hezekiah gets a letter from Sennacherib threatening him. And then verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He runs to the temple. He runs to God. He's tried running elsewhere. We've seen that. He tried running to Egypt. Didn't work. Finally here, after all these chapters, the king finally runs to God. 
and lays the problem out before him. I love that image of what it means to pray, to lay uh, the problem out before the Lord. And he prays a fantastic prayer in verse 16. Look with me. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It's true, Lord, the the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all these peoples and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. He runs to the king of the universe. There's just two things I really want us to to see here in this prayer. First of all, do you notice he, he sets this problem in the context of God's power? He says, do you see it there? Um, in verse 16, Lord Almighty, and thrown between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth and have made the heavens and the earth. Look, in the way the Bible puts it, okay, what you have in, 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 in reality consists of this. You've got God, okay, and then you've got everything else, stuff that God has made. That's it, right? There is nothing here. There's God, and there's stuff that God has made. And in this prayer, Hezekiah is saying, yeah, Lord, they really have destroyed all these other nations. They really have destroyed these other gods. But Lord, you're not like them. You're not here. You're above everything. You're enthroned over everything. So hear their threats, Lord. See, he sets it in the context of God's power. And then what does he ask for? Well, verse 20 Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. He says, deliver us. Why? So that everyone can see this. So that everyone can see that you are the only God. See, the salvation, the deliverance there, it's, it's about more than just God's people. It's great for them that they're going to get delivered. Of course it is. But it's about more than that. It's about God showing and proving that he is the only God. Deliver us. So that he he sets it in light of God's God's power. And he he asks and he prays for deliverance. And by running to God in that moment, by spreading out the situation to him, it gives him this perspective shift. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, when my faith is mocked, what happens in my mind is that whoever's mocking me or the threat, that seems very, 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 very big. And how does God look in that moment? Very, very, very small. The threat, the mockery takes up my heart, my mind, my emotions, and God just seems very small. But what Hezekiah does here, he runs and he places the problem in prayer in light of God's power. And he gets this perspective shift. Think what a difference it would make if we did that. So he runs and he runs to the king of the universe. And what does God do? Well, God then acts to demonstrate 
that this is true, <laughs> that re- he really is the only one who's mighty to save. That's our third point. God alone is mighty to save. So look down at verse 21 with me. Then Isaiah, son of Amor, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is uh, the word the Lord has spoken against him. We can't read it all, sadly. Do read it when you go home. But the, the, the heart of it is in verse 28 and 29 of what God says to Sennacherib. God says this, I know where you are and when you come and go. I know how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. Verse 28, you see there, God does know what's going on. Every move that Sennacherib has made, every mocking word, God has heard it. The insolence has reached his ears. God hears every single time our faith is mocked and takes it personally. That's striking to me that actually it is an offense against him. That moment when my faith is mocked, it's actually less about me than I think. Someone's mocking my faith. That really is between them and their creator. God hears every time we're mocked. And look at what he says he is going to do um, to the king of Assyria. Verse 29. I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'll make you return by the way you came. It's a bit like popping a a leash on a puppy and just dragging him. Come on, home now. The great mighty king of Assyria, the huge threatening army. It's like when, when God shows up, it just looks like a little puppy. Pop the leash on, come on, home we go. Compared to God, that's what it's like. And and it's exactly what happens. Just look at verse 36 with me again. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And then his kids murder him. I'm not going to risk trying to pronounce their names. Um. You see how simple that is. You've got this huge threatening army. And then overnight, the breath that God had given this army, he just takes it away. And they go home. And that's it. It's kind of an anticlimax, isn't it? After 10 chapters, the Assyrian army's coming. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. There's going to be this big fight. And then... They're defeated and they go home. In two verses. It's almost an anticlimax. I mean, it's a bit, imagine if they did that with a Rocky film. Imagine you had a Rocky movie and the bad guy's introduced at the beginning and the threat gets bigger and bigger through the film and it's building up, it's building up, it's building up to this massive fight. Final scene, bell goes ding, ding, ding. Rocky just goes, <laughs> guy falls over, credits roll. <laughs> what? Is that it? After all of that? Well, Yes. <laughs> That's it. It's that simple for God. There is no competition here between humanity and God himself. There is no fight to be had there. 
the king of Assyria. I got to think for, for, for King Hezekiah that night, he must have been thinking, of course, all this time he would think, will I trust God? Won't I trust God? Will I trust God? Won't I trust God? Of course, it was the right thing to do to trust God because he alone is mighty to save. And, and, and here he has, he's demonstrated that power in history. He demonstrates here with the king of Assyria that this is true, that he alone is mighty to save. And that's why I think this is relevant for us today. God doesn't just ask us to trust that he is ultimately trustworthy with no evidence. He demonstrates again and again and again through history that he alone is mighty to save. He demonstrated it when he rescued his people from Egypt. He demonstrates it here with the king of Assyria. He demonstrates it again with Babylon. And ultimately, for you and me today, he demonstrates this same truth in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus comes and dies a death in our place and rises from the grave, defeating our ultimate enemy, sin and death. That is the ultimate salvation. That is the ultimate demonstration of this truth that God alone is powerful um, to save us. Why would I trust in anything else when he's demonstrated time and time again through history that he alone is the one that's worth trusting in? So what are we to do with this? Well, really, and it's the same message that we've seen through the last 10 chapters. I think, what are we to do with this? I think we're meant to run to God as our only savior, like Hezekiah does. We're meant to run to him as our only savior. If you're here this morning and you're just looking in, on the Christian faith. I don't know what it is that you look to in this world as your saviour. What is it that gives you comfort and hope and security ultimately? Can I just ask, why would you trust in anything else? God has demonstrated time and time again that he alone is mighty to save. Why? Don't let the rabshaka fix your eyes on things here. God himself is offering to be your saviour. Why would you put your trust in anything else? Well, for those of us here that would say we've already done that, that we, we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus, um, I think the same thing is true for us. This is encouraging us to do what Hezekiah does. When our, when our faith is threatened and mocked, to run to him as our saviour. You know, when we get those nagging doubts, when I hear that voice saying, look, maybe it is just stupid to believe this. I run to him. When my, my guilt or my shame makes me want to give up. When, when, when that voice comes in my mind saying, maybe God's abandoned me. Run to him as my savior. And I look at that demonstration of his power to save on the cross and, and the resurrection. Run to him like Hezekiah, and spread out the problem before him. Put it in the context of his power. But I want to just one final thought. I want to nuance that a little bit. Because there are, um, we know this, don't we? There are some threats that we face that God doesn't promise to get rid of. Like the wife with that husband who just teases her. Teases, teases. Like the colleague who makes snide remarks or the media that put pressure on us. God doesn't promise to take that away the way he did with the king of Assyria. 
So what do we do with, with, with those external threats to our faith? Well, I just want to show you a, 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 a really interesting example from the New Testament of this. It comes in Acts chapter 4, and I think this is really, really interesting. And what's happened is the apostles, this side of Jesus dying and rising, um, the apostles are being threatened, and they pray a prayer that's just like Hezekiah's, but with one difference. I wonder if you'd better spot it, okay? Have a look. This is from Acts chapter 4. They raise, they've just been threatened. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Do you see how similar that is to Hezekiah's prayer? You're the God over everything, just like Hezekiah said. Hear their threats, just like Hezekiah said. But then he doesn't, they don't say deliver us. They say, enable us to speak with boldness. Why? Well, I think it is that this side of the cross, our great deliverance has already come. God's already demonstrated once and for all his mighty power to save with Jesus dying and rising. So this side of the cross, what do I do? Well, it's the same as Hezekiah. We run to him. We put the problem in the context of his power. And we ask for boldness boldness to keep standing on our faith, to keep speaking for Jesus, whatever might come. Imagine if we all did that, what difference it would make. So what are we to do? What are we to do when our faith is mocked and threatened? Run to the God of the universe, because he alone is mighty to save. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we acknowledge now that this, this magnificent truth that you really are God alone. And thank you that we can look back at examples of you demonstrating that to us throughout history. Pray for us, Lord, as we head out into the world, as we head out into our lives, that when the mockery comes and when it undermines our confidence, you'd enable us to, uh, to, to, to look at this reality, to be like Hezekiah, to run to you with this and to put it in the context of your power. We pray that you might give us great boldness to hold on to our faith in the mockery that is, is going to be coming our way. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.